Amen. So, before I give you the sermon title and tell you what it's about, I'm going to start with some scripture reading. Maybe as we read a little, you'll kind of see what it's about. We're starting in the first book of the Bible, the first chapter, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. We read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. There's more scripture that we're going to read in a moment, but let me just make a few comments. So here we are in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. We're reading the first words recorded in this chapter, anyhow, ever spoken to humans, and we're reading the first commands that God ever gave to humans. And it's interesting, the commands are, have babies, raise them up, take care of the earth. Let's go to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and let's note the last words, the final words of the last Old Testament prophet in the last book of the Old Testament. First chapter 2, then chapter 4. Chapter 4, Malachi, I'm sorry, 2, Malachi 2.15. Did he not make them one, a reference to God, bringing the man and the woman and saying, now the two are one flesh? Did he, God, not make them one? With a portion of the Spirit in their union, God is in this. The Holy Spirit is in this. God has interests in this. It's a spiritual union. And then a question. And what was the one God seeking? Like, why did he do that? Well, there are more than a few reasons to get married. This is one of them. This is certainly a central one. And what was the one God seeking? And the answer is godly offspring. So God says in the first book of the Bible, have a lot of babies, multiply. Your babies have babies. Your babies' babies have babies. Multiply, fill the earth, be fruitful like a tree with lots of apples on it, not just one or two, a lot, a lot, a lot of apples on the earth. And, and why? What's God seeking? He's seeking to fill the earth so that from the earth he can fill heaven. He's seeking godly offspring. But there's more. Let's go to Malachi 4, the last chapter, the last two verses of the last book of the Old Testament. What does God say when he closes the Old Testament as we have it in our English versions? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, that's John the Baptist, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And what will he do? And he will turn the hearts of fathers. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. When God gets a hold of a, a, a father, when the Lord Jesus saves a father, when a father is regenerated by the Spirit of God and becomes a new creature in Christ, there are many effects. One of those effects is his heart gets turned to his kids. His heart gets turned to his children. Like, I want them to follow Christ I want them to live for eternity. I want them to be believers with me. 
John the Baptist, Elijah the prophet will come and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. That's a fruit of their regeneration. And the hearts of children to their fathers. What's one of many things that happen in a child when they savingly believe on the Lord Jesus? Their heart gets turned to their father. That's my father. I love my father. I want to please my father. I want to honor my father. I want to serve my father. I want to listen to my father. I want to learn from my father. A kid's heart gets turned to their father. And where that isn't happening, where there are fathers who, who aren't having their hearts to their children and children who don't have their hearts to their fathers, here's what happens. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Where you have on this planet, where you have fathers' hearts who aren't turned to the children, where you have children's hearts that aren't turned to their fathers, you get a lot of destruction. So it's interesting, isn't it? God's first words, God's first commands in the first chapter of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, his first words, his first commands are, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have a lot of babies. And then we get to the very end of the Old Testament and the very last chapter, and his last words are, I'm going to send Elijah. He'll be John the Baptist. He's going to turn fathers' hearts to kids, and he's going to turn kids' hearts to fathers. We start with parents and kids, and we end with parents and kids. I guess they're kind of important in the plan of God. So the title of this sermon, and it's going to be more than one, Lord willing, the title is Kids. There's the, there's the serious slide. Now, let me just pause here and say I, I, I understand for some of you this is going to be difficult. I get it, because kids has been a challenging subject in your life. It might be due to infertility. It might be that you have kids, but there are problems. There have been challenges. It's been painful. I understand that. Nothing can bring you more joy, and nothing can bring you more pain. I've experienced both. So, so I get that. May the Lord help you through a couple of sermons on kids having to struggle with your own painful experiences, but may we all learn and grow from God's word. So this is about kids, and before you singles clock out, before you empty nesters clock out, before you say under your breath, kids, I don't want to hear about kids. We got rid of ours. (laughs) We fed them, they grew up, they went away. Now life is great, kids. What are you going to preach about kids? You're not really going to make me sit and listen to a whole sermon on kids, are you? No, I'm going to make you sit and listen to three. Maybe four. We'll see how it goes. So before you clock out, before you start thinking, you mean the little monsters, the rugrats, the brats, the monkeys, the munchkins, the ankle biters? Yes, them. We're going to be talking about them. And this sermon is very much for you. It's very much for every person who has a part of Cornerstone. Yes, it's for parents, but it's also for singles and empty nesters. It's for us as a church. So I'll tell you, I'll just be honest with you. I'll tell you, I have a goal. I have a purpose. There's a problem I'm trying to solve. Any good sermon has a goal. Any good sermon has a purpose. Any sermon is trying to solve a problem. If not, don't preach it. And there's a problem I'm trying to solve, and there's a purpose that I have. There's a goal in mind, and it is that I would be able to, that with God's help, we would greatly increase our corporate interest in kids, our corporate love for kids, our corporate delight in kids as the next generation, as the next members of this church and of the kingdom of God. So, 
There are some other titles I could have given to this besides kids. I bandied about various titles. I thought about a biblical theology of kids. I liked that one. A biblical worldview of kids. The meta-narrative. That's cool. It had a big word in it. The meta-narrative about kids. The big story about kids. The place of kids in the expansion of the kingdom of God. That's too many words. You wouldn't see the picture. The role kids play in God's cultural mandate and the Great Commission. Ditto. Too many words. So I just settled on kids so you can see the artwork. The main idea is that our ministry to kids is not just one of the things we also do. It's not just like, well, the parents, the adults want to sit here and worship undistracted by the munchkins, so let's shove the munchkins downstairs, we'll babysit them, it doesn't really matter, and the real event is happening up here. No, uh, our kids' ministry is not what you would call in a race and also ran. Right? Like there's the three who podiumed, there's the top ten, they get named, and then everybody else also ran. Now, our kids' ministry is not an also ran. It is a major part of what we're doing at Cornerstone Church. And I'm trying to, I know I can't do this with just one or two or three sermons, but it'll help maybe. I'm trying to up our corporate consciousness of the amazing presence of these little people who are very good candidates for the kingdom of God. I'm trying to increase our interest in ministering to them. So let me show you a few facts, a few facts. These are from the Barna Group. The Barna Group is very good at what they do. They're very good at statistics. They're very good with numbers and charts. And here I'm showing you a chart. Most Americans, it might be different in other parts of the world, though I doubt it. Most Americans who are ever, 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 ever converted in our, these days are converted while children. There's the numbers. 85% of all who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ do so between ages of 4 and 14. 85%. Now, God is sovereign. He can save anybody at any age that he wants to. He saved my dad when my dad was 47. My dad had been an atheist his whole life. 47, he turned and believed on the Lord Jesus. He saved my Uncle Leonard, who had been an atheist his whole life and was on his deathbed in his 90s in Gettysburg Hospital, and the Lord saved him, and I believe he really did. So God is sovereign. He saves whom he will, when he will, how he will. But the fact of the matter is we can see he is primarily saving in our nation at this time those who are between the ages of 4 and 14. And the next group who gets 10% of the pie is ages 15 through 30. So it would behoove us to understand this corporately and to really focus a sizable portion of our effort at evangelism in those ages. Now, let me just step back and say, if you've been reading your Bible, you noticed that biblical evangelism usually targets adult men, and it did. There are occasions, there was a prayer meeting Paul went to, a women's prayer meeting he went to once, and he, and he targeted the women. Nothing wrong with that. But usually they go after the men, because if you get the, the men, then you might get the woman, and you might get the kids. So they target adult men, and we ought to do that, and may the Lord save so many adult men that it blows this statistic here to, you know, off the planet. But the fact of the matter is, most of the people that we are seeing come to Christ are between the ages of 4 and 14. So just, just let that settle in you a minute. Just think about that a little bit. What does that mean? So if we want to evangelize, and we do, amen, Cornerstone? If we want to fulfill the Great Commission and make disciples, then baptize them and teach them to do all that Jesus commanded. And we do want to do that. If you want to do that, if you want to lead lots of people to saving faith in Jesus Christ, 
To what group of people might you direct a fair amount of your attention? To kids. Somebody said children. That's a better word than kids. Here's an interesting note from church history. Are are you familiar with the origins of Sunday school? Sunday school uh, was invented, let's say. They came up with the idea of Sunday school in the 1700s in England. By the 1800s, it was a going thing. A lot of churches had Sunday school. You know one of my heroes from that era is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was in London until he died in 1892. And uh, their church had Sunday school. But Sunday school was a totally different animal from what we know Sunday school to be. Here's how it began. There were tons and tons and tons of unchurched kids all around, all around them in all their cities and all their towns. All these kids who aren't being brought to church to hear God's word, to hear the gospel. And they were strategizing, what can we do? How can we reach them? And they came up with this idea that they called Sunday school. It wasn't Sunday in the building during church. It was Sunday afternoon. So if you want to be a Sunday school teacher, here's what you would sign up for. They did not hand you a classroom of kids and say, go in there and teach those kids. You had to go get the kids. So you'd go out into the neighborhoods, you might canvas, you might knock on doors. Uh, I read this thing where Spurgeon recommended, put on an army suit, put on your regimentals, beat a drum and march through the streets and you'll gather some kids and get them in your room and tell them about Jesus. That was Sunday school. It was designed to reach kids. It was a strategy to reach kids who aren't hearing the gospel. Why did they do that? Well, because they cared, but they realized there's a lot of kids to be reached out there. In our day, you can't do that. Like, you're not going to walk through somebody's neighborhood, knock on doors, and gather up kids, right? That's not happening in our day. There's too much bad stuff going down for that. But in their day, that worked. It was a strategy that worked. Take a slide, man. Back to the kids' slide, please. Please. So here's what we saw on the chart. Most who come to Christ do so as kids. Now here's a question for you. Let's see how you do. Who leads all those kids to Christ? Who has the most impact? Who's getting in touch with these kids, sharing the gospel with these kids? Who has the most influence with these kids? Who? Who do you guess? Yeah, that's right. That was easy. Too easy. You don't get any credit. It's the parents. It's absolutely the parents. Parents who, like Ephesians 5, 6, Ephesians 6, fathers, it's fathers. Some of our versions water it down and make it parents. It's not. It's fathers. Fathers, train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Like, I want my kids to know Jesus Christ more than anything else I want for my kids. So there's the command to fathers. Fathers, here's your big test. You got some kids now. All right, feed them. That's good. But you got to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Parents, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And these words that I'm commanding you are in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you'll talk of them when you walk in the way and when you rise up and when you lie down. So that they're like bombarded with God's truth from mom and dad. There's nothing can match that. There's no second to that. It's certainly parents that God is primarily using to reach kids. More parents lead more sinners to saving faith in Jesus Christ than anybody else is leading anybody else to Jesus Christ. It's parents over time. But who else has influence on the kids coming to Christ? What would be next? After parents, what's next that has the most influence on kids? Yeah, it's church. Y'all are good. I can't fool you with anything. 
It's parents, and then it's church. And church isn't very far away from parents. Church has a lot of influence on kids. Which, by the way, is why Debbie and I always, 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 always wanted our kids in church. Because church is helping us with the thing we most want for our kids. We want all the help we can get. So we always, 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 always wanted them in church. just want to give you ladies a clue too. My girl, let's take the years when we had our four sons living with us. They were little guys. And then we had three other guys living with us. There was a time we had three. There were times we had two. There were times we had two others. We had a lot of other boys live with us here and there because they needed somewhere to live. And we took them in because we knew boys. We can do boys. So there was a time we had all these boys. Let's say at a given time she had seven boys. Some of them had disabilities. And she got no help from me whatsoever on Sunday. I'm gone. I'm le- I left early. I get home late. We'd have an evening service. She had to get them all to church, get them all home. She had to get them all clothed. She had to get them all fed. And then we'd have an evening service. She'd have to get them all clothed, get them all fed. And after the evening service, I brought some of our good guys home to our house, and she would make us all some subs, and we'd eat our subs, and then we'd sit around and talk theology and mentor these guys. She had to do all that by herself, ladies, so give my wife some kudos, all right? All right? But we wanted our kids there because we want the biggest help we can get for the biggest task we got, which is leading our kids, <clears throat> excuse me, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly we want to evangelize all ages, but we should recognize this. Most who are going to believe, most who are coming to Jesus in our day, in our land, they will be kids. This is so important. This is such a big fact that a whole lot of missiologists, people who study like how to do mission, a whole lot of church leaders, a whole lot of ministries that want to reach kids have talked about and written about what they call the 414 window. From age 4 to age 14, there's a window there, the 414 window. Uh, that was first, that phrase was first used, the, the term was coined by Bryant Myers of World Vision, you've heard of them. And back in 1994, 54 different child ministry organizations gathered for a two-day conference, and they focused on ways to evangelize children between 4 and 14. Awana Clubs International, by the way, bless them. They're in 10,000 U.S. churches. They hosted the gathering at their headquarters in Illinois. Christianity Today was there. As I already said, World Vision was there. And they bandied about, and they worked on the 414 corridor, they called it. The 414 window. Later in 2004, at the Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization in Thailand, a group of Christian evangelists examined the state of evangelism among children in the world. They published a paper, and what they said is, we ought to target kids between 4 and 14. They also said, by the way, and we ought to do it, and this is going to be too many numbers. I'm going to lose you here. Don't let me lose you. Hang in here. Show what strong people you are. All right, there's the 414 window, and there's also a 1040 window. What's the 1040 window? That's geography. That's if you go over to the eastern hemisphere. East is that way. If you go to the eastern hemisphere, and if you go 10 degrees above the equator, up to 40 degrees above the equator, and draw a big line around that, that, the kids in that geographical area are the best evangelistic pickings on the planet. And they determined we ought to really focus on that area and try to reach kids over there. So there's the 414 window in the 1040 window. That's where evangelism is most hot on the planet. Isn't that interesting? 
The people at World Vision recognized this as far as back as 2005. They're very much focused on the 414 window. All that to say this, understanding that that's mainly who God is saving speaks to our church. We want to reach a lot of people. We want to see a lot of people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Where can we expect to see most of them? Frankly, from our kids, from the kids in this church. You want to lead people to Christ? Sign up for kids ministry. By the way, let me just tell you, that is not why I'm having this series. This series was not conceived in order to get you to sign up, though I'm going to leverage it for that. But that's not the purpose. That's not what made me think I want to do this. Here's what made me think I want to do this. I just finished a massive book by my favorite living theologian. His name is John Frame. This book is The Doctrine of the Christian Life. It was awesome. And he had a whole chapter in there on kids. And the chapter really rocked me. The chapter really worked on me. And I thought, I got to preach on this. And that's where it came from. But I'll leverage it to say, sign up sometimes. Help us to reach these kids. There's another reason why we want to reach kids. It's not just that they're the low-lying fruit. They're the most likely, statistically, to come to saving faith in Christ. It's also that people who do these studies have figured out that those who are raised in the church, those who are raised in Christian homes, generally, statistically, turn out to be stronger, more robust, better theologically educated believers than those who come to faith later in life. What's wrong with those who come to faith later in life? Well, they don't have all the foundation. They don't have all the learning. They don't have all the training. They're not used to, as a way of life, we go to church all the time. And they're more syncretistic. That is a little bit of the world and a little bit of the gospel. A little bit of the world, a little bit of Jesus. A little bit of the world and a little bit of Christian living. They're more that away on average. There are exceptions to that, of course, but on average. So we want to reach kids, church kids, because they're the ones most likely to come to Jesus Christ, and they're most likely to turn into the strongest, most robust, most solid future residents of the kingdom of God. So as we go through these couple of messages... And even after this one today, I hope after church, every kid you see, you'll go, wow. That might be a future citizen of the kingdom. Wow. We might be baptizing that girl someday soon. Wow. Uh, She might lead a ladies' Bible study one day and help ladies get strong in the Lord Jesus. And we ought to be amazed at these kids. So not like, get away from me, rugrat. Hey, father and mother, your kids over here bother me. Get your kid out of here. No, 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 no. It's like kids. All right? So most of the kids the church is, most of the people the church is reaching are kids. And most of the kids the church is reaching are the kids of church families. Let me say it a different way. Most of the people who are coming to Christ are kids. And most of the kids who are coming to Christ are in church. Stunning, isn't it? So what's going on downstairs with our kids right now is not just to get them out of here so we don't have mayhem. So parents can sit undistracted and listen and participate in worship. It's also because that is vitally important ministry. What's going on downstairs is part of the real event. So here's what I'm after. I'm after you single people 
who have no kids. I'm after you empty nesters who no longer have kids in the home. I'm after you parents who do have kids. To view these kids that God has deposited among us, and we have a stewardship over them, to view them as vitally important to the kingdom of God, as very likely the next inhabitants of the kingdom of God, as the future, what word can I use? Owners, what's the right word? Of Cornerstone Church. Stewards, sorry, thank you. Members, none of us are owners. The Lord Jesus is the owner. We love kids. We do kids. We pray for kids. We want kids. We want to draw them to Jesus Christ. I just finished a book titled Masculine Christianity. Loved it by a guy named Garris. Let me pull out one quote from that book. And he said, godly Christians care about the future of humanity, and they therefore care about children right. I'll read it again. Godly Christians care about the future of humanity, and they therefore care about children. Are you a godly Christian? Then you should care about the future of humanity. If you care about the future of humanity as a godly Christian, you care about children. You care about the kids in the church. Another quote, Robert Louis Dabney, one of my heroes, he was probably the most eminent theologian in the South in the 1800s. And he said, quote, the education of children in the things of God is the most important business done on earth. It is the one business for which the earth exists. So after a quote from Garrus, he's alive now, after a quote from Dabney, he was 1800s, now it's time for an illustration from chicken farming. Can you all handle an illustration from chicken farming? Thank you, thank you. So imagine you're a chicken farmer. What does the chicken farmer need? Chickens. But you get them when they're baby chickens. So what you need is a hatchery. So either you buy your chicks from another hatchery or you have your own hatchery. If you have your own hatchery, you hover over that thing. They're your future. If you have your own hatchery, you're very solicitous about that thing. You really care about that thing. You monitor that thing. Because that's your future. That's where you're getting your chickens. We don't have chickens. We have souls. We have people. And we have a hatchery. We have chicks. They're the kids of the church. And other kids too. And adults too. But most who will come to Christ are going to be kids of the church. We have a hatchery and we have chicks. And we must hover over it. You must. It's our future. We care about it. We nurture it. Please don't be like, look, I raised my kids. It was awful. I'm done. I get it. Some of life's biggest challenges. But you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. And you can't say, well, they're neighbors, but I'm done. I don't want that. All right? As a church, we want to nurture them. It is no accident that we have two staff members, one full-time and one rather part-time, devoted to ministry to our young people. Why do we do that? Because... That's fruitful ministry because that matters. Brittany, who heads up our children's ministry, she has the largest team of volunteers in the church. She's got over 40. She needs about 45 or 47 now, volunteers. Hint, hint. We dedicate all that staff and all that volunteer time. Why? Because it's our chick farm. I'm going to paint on the walls as you go downstairs, chick farm, little chickens. 
By the way, in the first service, right at this point, that reminded me of an anecdote. So I'm going to tell you, but I can't pretend like I just now remembered it. But that did happen in the first service. So... So one of the most famous evangelists ever was George Whitfield. He was in England in the 1700s. He also came over here and preached up and down our shores, started an orphanage in Georgia and other stuff. He was a great, eloquent speaker. He could be heard for a long way away, um, George Whitfield. But, but he was a, a Presbyterian, and they baptized their infants. We're Baptists. We baptize believers by immersion. They sprinkled their babies so he led a ton of people to Christ in America in the 1700s, but he'd come back to visit, and a whole lot of them had turned Baptist. The Baptists got a hold of them and dunked them, and George Whitfield said, alas, many of my chicks are turning into ducks. They're getting in the water and getting dunked. Yeah, good for that. Most of the people who are coming to Christ are kids, and most of the kids who are coming to Christ are in church. That is thunderous. So I want to increase, if I can, our corporate love for kids, our interest in kids. Kids are a very big part of who we are and what we do. I also want to encourage and challenge parents, because it's rough, right? It's like there are days where it's war. Amen? Amen? Anybody experience days where it's, it's war, man? It's like, and, and at the end of the day, husband and wife look at each other, you're all frazzled and everything, and, and you go, why did we do this? Like, what, what were we thinking? So I want to encourage parents, because it can be rough. Instead of, I can't wait till they grow up and leave us alone. I know you have moments like that. I understand. But we want to encourage parents. We want to encourage fathers whose hearts get turned to their children. And their children's hearts need to get turned to their fathers. We want to encourage families. We want to encourage parents. We're here to help you. We're part of your team. We're here to back you up. You can hand them to us on Sunday morning. You can hand them to us on Sunday night. And we'll work them over too. And we'll give them the word of God, and we'll give them the gospel, and we'll back up what you're teaching your kids with the hope that they will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so that was the introduction to the sermon. Now we're ready to start. What we're going to do from here on out for a couple weeks is work on developing a biblical theology of kids. That is, we're going to go through significant Bible portions starting in Genesis chapter 1. Next week, hopefully, we'll get all the way down to the Lord Jesus on kids. But we're going to start in Genesis 1. What does the Bible teach us about kids? How should we feel about kids, think about kids? What, what does God teach us about kids? And we're, so we're going back to Genesis 1.28. Slide, ma'am. Give us 1.28, please. Thank you. And God blessed them. He made Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden, and he blessed them. What does that mean? He blessed them. That means he's wishing them well. It's the opposite of, and he cursed them. If you curse them, you're not wishing them well. You're wishing bad things. He blessed them. He's wishing them wellness. He's wishing them blessing and joy. He blessed them. He spoke a blessing over them. Well, what does that mean practically? What does that turn into? In what way will they be blessed? Here's what follows. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish. So he blessed them, and then he gave them these five staccato, these five quick verbs. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, that's procreation, 
Subdue it and have dominion over it. That's domination. Three verbs for procreation, two verbs for domination. Here's what they're supposed to do. Let's put up the next slide, please, that has the cultural mandate on it. Many have called this passage that we just read the cultural mandate. So in the Bible, in the beginning, we have the cultural mandate. When we get to Matthew chapter 28, Jesus layers on top of it the Great Commission. So what are we doing on the planet? We're being fruitful. We're multiplying. We're filling the earth. We're having dominion over it. We're taking care of it. And we're preaching the gospel to every creature, leading people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and then teaching them everything he commanded. That's, what, that's what's going on on the planet. There's the big picture. Um, there's the, the meta-narrative, if you will. But let's look at these three verbs that relate to children. First, he says, be fruitful. You know what that means. Like, if you plant an apple tree, and then you stand there and you say to it, be fruitful, what do you want? A lot of them, right? By the way, this sermon is not about some number that's in my head about how many babies y'all ought to have. Not my circus, not my monkeys, not my business. And don't you go judging anybody else. You don't know why they're married and don't have a baby, and maybe they desperately want one, and it's been hard. You don't know why they have one. You don't know why they have two. You don't know why they have ten. Well, you kind of know why they have ten. You get the idea. That, that's not our circus. That's not our monkeys. That's not where we're going here. But I do want to note, God says, be fruitful. See, I had this guy, now I'm going to get off track. I had this guy, used to be part of this church years ago, and uh, they were into like have as many kids as you possibly bodily, physically can, and they were doing so. And uh, he was upset at me for a number of things. Why aren't you preaching to our church that everybody ought to have as many babies as they possibly can? And his, he had this thing where People ought to have seven kids. Why seven? Because the Bible says you're blessed if your quiver is full of them, and an ancient quiver would handle seven arrows. I thought, all right, like where did you get that? And what does that have to do with anything? So there I got off track, but we're back to the verse. Be fruitful. That means have a lot of babies. Multiply. That means have babies that have babies that have babies that have babies. So you're multiplying the effect. And finally, to what end? And fill the earth. Here's a good question. Hmm. Wouldn't this be fun for us to discuss? Don't raise hands. How many of you think the earth is full? How many of you think the earth is not full? Wouldn't that be interesting? Having babies, raising children, is a deep, deep part of God's first words to humanity in God's cultural mandate. Having babies, lots of babies, is one of the most amazing and important things humans do. Malachi says here's why. He's seeking a godly seed. He wants to populate heaven. They're all going to come from earth. He's seeking a godly seed. He wants boys and girls who love Jesus Christ and follow Jesus Christ. So that at Cornerstone Church, when a married couple says, and this is hard for me to say, when they say, we're pregnant. See, that's weird to me. We're pregnant. You're not pregnant. She's pregnant. All right, so, you know, from my lifetime, we never said we're pregnant. You always said, she's, and now I know it's we're. So, all right, I'm adapting, and I'm willing to say, oh, you all are pregnant, huh? You get my problem? Like, he's really not pregnant. All right, she is, but I know there's a, there's a group effort there, so we're, okay. So when a couple comes into Cornerstone and says, guess what, we're pregnant, we're all like, yeah. You know, a- another possible inhabitant of the kingdom of God is being deposited into our stewardship and into our midst. 
When a couple comes in and they have one child or three children or seven children, not our business, however many they have, and they come in and we're around the children, we're like, oh, look at that. He might be the pastor of this church someday. Look at her. She might be married to the pastor of this church someday. It's really cool. So God says, fill the earth. Here's a good question. Have we done that? Is the job done? Depends on who you ask. Depends on where you live. If you live in Seattle, we need to reduce the population. Frank Turner, guy who's been part of our church, they are now, hear how I said that? They are pregnant with their sixth. They lived in Seattle for a while, and he, he was telling me recently, he and I had lunch somewhere, he was telling me that when they were in Seattle, like if you were out in the streets and you had one kid, people would be like, yep, they were proven of that, you got one kid, cool. If you had two kids, you might get some looks like, like what are you doing, two kids? He said, if, if, if you had six kids in Seattle, they'd be screaming at you, you're ruining the planet! So there's that view, right? Is this earth overcrowded? Well, now I'm getting into opinions and not the word of God. Is my opinion? No, there's lots of space. The stuff I've read says it's good. First, it's good for evangelical Christians to have lots of babies because they are future, p- potential future inhabitants of the kingdom of God. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the church. We'll try and help you lead them to Christ. But especially in developed countries, which aren't even replacing themselves, which are diminishing their own, except for immigration, they are shrinking. Uh, Studies I've done say those people in those developed areas are productive. They help the earth. They produce. They invent. They develop. They provide. It's really good for people who are shrinking, to enlarge, to have more. I could give you some books on that, but I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to. God says lots of babies, have lots of babies, because he wants people in heaven. How do Americans view babies? There are a couple of disturbing metrics that I want to put before you right now. I know they're not the whole story, but one of those metrics comes from the world, the awful world of abortion. In our nation, there are people who ruthlessly murder little people who can't protect themselves. Shame on our nation. It says something about how we view at least some children, the most helpless ones, like the most dangerous place on the earth to be is in your mother's womb. True. God says have lots of babies. We kill lots of babies. In the USA, 3.6 million are actually born, allowed to live. 3.6 million are born every year. How many were killed that weren't born? About a million. About a million. One can only hope that future generations will look back on that in the same way that we look back on the Nazi era and say, what in the world were they thinking? What were they doing? By the way, hats off to Texas. Kudos to Texas. New Texas law, new Texas law went into effect on Wednesday, the fetal heartbeat law. No abortion after they can detect the fetal heartbeat, which is generally about six weeks. This effectively ends most abortions in the state of Texas. Supreme Court said, we're not getting in that. We're not going to act. Texas law stands. Yay, Supreme Court. 
Texas Governor Greg Abbott said, and I quote him, our creator endowed us with the right to life, and yet millions of children lose their right to life every year because of abortion. So that's one metric that might indicate something about how we feel about some kids. You don't want it? Throw it away. Suction it to pieces. Slice it up. Here's another metric, another indicator of how the world views children. There is this thing called the worldwide futility rate. It's also known as the infant replacement rate. Let me explain. How many kids does the average couple on the planet have to have just to maintain the current population level? Just to maintain, not to multiply, not to fill. How many kids does the average couple on the planet have to have? The answer is 2.1. Say, How can I have 2.1 children? All right, you get it. Statistically, because of because of the infant, the rate of infant mortality, some people have to have more than two. Just to maintain, as of now, about half of the world's population lives in nations that are below the 2.1 replacement rate. This includes all of Europe, Canada, Australia, Brazil, Russia, Iran, Tunisia, China, the United States, and many others. Italy is at 1.3, as is Portugal, Poland, Greece, Spain, and Cyprus. France is the highest in all of Europe at 2.0. They're not even replacing themselves. We're not replacing ourselves. In USA, in 2019, we were at 1.7. In 2020, it fell to 1.6. What nations have high rates? Niger wins on the planet, 7.0. The USA is at 1.6. We are shrinking. Well, no, our population is growing due to immigration. New York Times, that I, I, I don't even like uttering their name, put out an article. Once in a while, they can say something that's right. And they, they did a poll. Could you trust it? Probably. Sounds good to me. Why did parents say they don't want kids or they don't want more kids? Here are the top answers. One, child care is too expensive. Two, I want more time for the kids I have. Three, we're worried about the economy. I get that. Four, we can't afford more children. Five, we're waiting because of financial instability. Do you notice the theme here? And six, probably the biggest one, but they left it for six. We want more leisure time and personal freedom. Whatever the reasons, and I'm not judging anybody for having zero, one, two, or however many, but... Americans and most families in most developed nations apparently do not value children enough to even replace themselves with them. Which leads me to say, Cornerstone Church, our world and our nation lacks a biblical view of kids. We live in our world and we are affected by it. We need to fight that world and its discipleship with God's word. We need to be biblically informed about children. So that's why we're in this. God's first words to humans, have lots of babies, multiply it, fill this place. I want lots of inhabitants in heaven. Procreate and dominate. Slide man, back to the title slide, please. We're at the end. Most of the people who are coming to Christ are kids, and most of the kids who are coming to Christ are in church. So I want to speak to parents, and I want to speak to the church in closing. Parents, just want to say to you again, you want your kids in church. You want all the help you can get 
We're just help. You're the main players, but we're help, and we're pretty good help. We've got a lot of resources that back up what you hope for your kids. You want your kids in church. Like, Debbie and I wanted our kids in church every Sunday we could possibly have them in church. Like, nothing, nothing except a providential hindrance was going to stop us from that. What do I mean by a providential hindrance? All right, if our house burnt down, I'd still probably take them to church because I can't change that anyway, right? What would it take? You know, one of them is in the hospital. All right, he'll miss church that day. Other than stuff like that, we're going to be in church, guys. We're raising churchmen. We're raising boys and girls for the kingdom. And we want all the help we can get. Parents, you want your kids in church. And church, you want to love and care about and minister to the families and the parents and the kids. We want to be a church that's really excited about the kids of the church. They're the future of the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the families of this church. We pray for those for whom this was a difficult sermon, a difficult topic. You know their hearts, you know their reasons, you know what's going on in their lives. Would you minister comfort to them? Would you give them the peace that comes from the Holy Spirit, the one that passes understanding? We also pray, Father, that you will make us more of a church that values and wants to invest in the kids. Help us, Father, to reach many other people, old people, young people, people who aren't in church. But in addition to them, help us to do this thing right with our kids. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.